So for this class, for this semester, uh, if you don't know, there, there are uh, several texts that we're using. Uh, one, uh, we're using uh, Tom Wayman's uh, New Testament um, translation published by Deseret Book and by BYU. Um, how many of you were able to go to Tom Wayman's uh, study group the other night? Look at that. Isn't that great? What'd you think? Fantastic. Was he fantastic? Wasn't he good? One of the things I did at Education Week is that we managed to troop over at 5 o'clock every night to hear Wayman uh, and, ex and explain a little bit more. So um, it's funny. While I, was, while I was in Utah, I was, uh, I was showing this to my daughter and, uh, and my 14-year-old uh, grandson was was sitting there listening and and I and I said L let me show you the difference and I opened up to Romans 7 and I started reading some of Romans 7 awayments and my and my 14 year old grandson went wait I could read that mom can we do that that that'd be better I like that <laughs> and so she went out that day and actually picked it picked up the book because uh, 14 year olds can read this which I think is is pretty terrific. So we're using uh, we're using that. We're also going to be there's a new one by a BYU professor that I like, a stranger in Jerusalem, seeing Jesus as a Jew. Uh, Trevin Hatch has done a good job on that. Uh, and of course we're we're going to be drawn still heavily on uh, Ken Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Um, and so if you want some good background reading material, these are. These are fantastic uh, for helping us kind of understand where we are. Um, along with that then, what I thought I would do is, oh, I, I was just going to mention, Shelly and I were just talking about this. With uh, Tom the other night um, in McKinney said that uh, the, when they published the New Testament, um, Deseret Book wasn't sure it was going to study, or it wasn't going to sell that well. So they did it in softback, and they did it kind of in smaller print. Uh, it's now in its fifth printing, uh, selling out of, of all of it. And at BYU, it was just disappearing off the shelf. Um, and, and so there are bigger study versions of it coming, but, but that means that when you get the Kindle online version, it doesn't navigate very well. So that's why I've had to get both the hard copy and the Kindle version uh, to utilize that. Yeah. The e-versions also do not have a lot of the cross-references and notes that the hardback. Well, th they are, but you just, but unfortunately you have to, you know, they don't have the cross-references and notes. They do. They're all there. They're just all in a lump at the, rather than like underneath each page on the screen, you have to go all the way to the end of the chapter and dig your way all the way to verse 37. So it's, it's, it doesn't equip itself very well on that, okay? Uh, so that's why I got the hard... Uh, I did the same thing, by the way, with the New Oxford NRSV version of the Bible, which I got on Kindle first, and you can't navigate that at all, and it's about that, it's about 1,500 pages. So I had to actually get the hard copy so I could write all over it and stuff like that. So, all right. Uh, now, I was also thinking, too, for Come Follow Me, uh, as, you're, as you're walking through uh, the rest of the New Testament, uh, and come follow me up until uh, January when you hop in the Book of Mormon. But so the resources I think to think about, I would make sure that you have Waymans, especially for trying to read Paul in the King James Version, is miserable. Read it with this. That, that makes it so much more clear. Uh, so uh, it helps 
uh, as much. Uh, I would also, uh, I love uh, N.T. Wright's uh, Paul. Uh, N.T. Wright will, will give you a lot of other stuff as well, and sometimes if it gets to be too pontificating, you, you jump through, but he is just, to me, he is the, the master New Testament scholar. Uh, and then also Ken Bailey wrote a book called Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes, looking at 1 Corinthians. Um, and let, let, let me give you, I think I, I can do this in just a minute, I won't take long. One of the things that, for instance, comes out with, uh, it, when, when Bailey's talking about Paul, he mentions the fact that in Corinth, um, the, the Jewish population in Corinth um, still spoke Aramaic. And they're in a pocket where the, everybody in Corinth that isn't Jewish is speaking Greek. You have two different languages going on. If you're a man working in, a, a male Jew working in Corinth, you're learning Greek, you know Greek, because you've got to use that in the marketplace as opposed to wives and mothers who were busy taking care of things at home and didn't really understand that much Greek. When they organized the church and these house churches in Corinth, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this more in detail uh, probably later this semester, but these house churches in here were presided over a lot of times by women. So you had women prophesiers, teachers, and men as well. They're both teaching, men and women, okay? But they would bring these groups in, and they would, and they would teach in Greek. So when a lot of the, the wives that only knew Aramaic were sitting in church and listening to a preacher, male or female, in Greek, they weren't being able to follow it. And they would get restless, and they would start talking to each other and asking each other what that meant and what about this, and they just lost energy on that because they couldn't understand the foreign language being spoken. So, so in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul is saying to these particular women, it's not good for women to speak in church. <laughs> in other words, be reverent in church, and if you don't understand something, go home and ask your husband. Because in some cases when he's saying it's not not good for women to speak in church. What they're what they're listening, who they're listening to, is a woman. The the woman is preaching the sermon, but the some of the uneducated women in the Corinth uh, house church were talking too much. So he's basically saying it's not about women should never speak in church. What it's what it's saying is be reverent in church, and if you're not understanding the language, ask your husband at home. Okay. Does that change the meaning for that? <laughs> Paul, Paul was not a misogynist. Paul was asking women to be the deacons in these house churches, and oftentimes they were. Yes? I've been acquainted with that for the last 60 years. Yes. Now, this is the first time I've the, heard the reason why Paul did that. Yeah. And now I can love him again. <laughs> <laughs> I can love him again. Yeah, yeah, and, and and now it suddenly makes sense because this church was operating where they leaned heavily on women, and and women were really involved. But if you don't understand that element, so I'm grateful to Ken Bailey for that little insight. Suddenly it changes everything. That's why it helps to have this little bit of additional knowledge that we can bring, I think, to our classes and things. Yeah. Um, 
how do you compare David Ridge's series, New Testament Made Easier, to all of these? Uh, you know, I've never really gone through David Ridge's stuff. It's pretty good. It's, it's good. It's good. But the, it's just the, the level of gospel scholarship on these is... Um, and, and some of this is just some, some of the more recent stuff. The thing that I like about uh, Bailey's stuff is that he's drawing on 1,500-year-old Syrian and Coptic and Arabic texts. So when he's looking at it, he's looking at what was in the King James, but he's saying, but what did the Lebanese Christians in their tradition say about the same thing? That's what makes this so much more powerful, I think. Okay? Otherwise, we're doing it with Western eyes and our own um, biases. and It's called presentism. We want it to look like then, like it looks now. Okay, all right. So, that said, uh, is that plenty on that? Now, also, uh, for the class, um, uh, if you don't know, I send out emails on, on Sunday night, usually with PowerPoint, uh, and then a lot of times, like by today or tomorrow, I should have the audio that I will send out. But that also means that all of the audio of all the classes is, that, is on the website if you want to go back and listen to a class over. Uh, then the nice thing is we were able to link it to Apple Podcasts. So that's what it looks like in Apple. Uh, it's, a, it's under class recordings. You can just click on these and get the, and get the classes and be able to download them and listen. Uh, and so I, I have people from around the country that say, yeah, we're listening. Thank you. Appreciate it. When are you posting the next class? <laughs> we're taking a break in the summer. Oh, okay. So, all right. Uh, so questions on the class at all? We're all kind of veterans, right? Okay. All right. Well, that said, um, I want to do two things today. I want to give you an idea quickly of some, some uh, this is coming from Trevin Hatch and some of the, the work that he's done to try and understand Jewish people. And then we're going to walk into the parable of the Good Samaritan, which gives us some really good uh, uh, background on all this. Okay. So, um, when we think about Jesus and Mary and the apostles and how do we picture them? What guides how we picture them? Some of the artwork. It's always the artwork, isn't it? And the artwork is done by who? A lot, of, a lot of it coming out of the Renaissance. You're getting a lot of, uh, from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and those artists. So we're really looking at it through uh, people like Da Vinci and uh, all those guys, right? So that gives us, and, and in the church, when we're taking a look at Jesus and, and the people, we have Bible videos, you know, we have all of the great biblical art, artwork that gives us a view of that. Okay, and, and you know what? For the purpose as a primary and the purpose of what we're trying to do, okay, that, that works. I like, I like that a lot. However, let's just be really clear about um, what it is that, that, that we're actually talking about. Uh, in, in, uh, at this period of time, uh, get a little warm in here, I think, isn't it? Can somebody just punch that, just hit that? It might have gone off. Is it still on? Punch the bottom one. There we go. Yay. Okay. Yeah. I think she got it. Okay, good. All right. 
So the average male uh, in, in that first century was about 5'5". Five five. That was a big guy. Okay, so you're going to get a lot of 5'2", five 5'3". Five um, life expectancy is about 30. Um, average female is about 4'10". And the life expectancy was kind of mid-20s, especially when you're talking about childbirth and everything that, that went with that, okay? So, and in fact, there is a, um, the, there's an apocryphal book, the uh, Acts of John, that says that Jesus was uh, smaller in stature. This would actually make him shorter than 5'5", five five in all likelihood, okay? Uh, Goliath, um, and, and Wayman helped out on this one. I went back through the Septuagint to take a look at it. Goliath, uh, in, the, in the King James, says that he was six cubits and a span, which would make him over nine feet tall. The Septuagint says, no, it's four cubits and a span, which would make him about 6'4". So if, uh, if they, if you, now you start picturing that, in that, that Goliath was actually shorter than most NBA players. But David was probably 5'4", <laughs> something like that, okay? Um, so the man um, had short, trim beard and short hair. In fact, Paul says long hair is a shame to him, so it was going to look something a little bit more like that, okay? Uh, unfortunately, as opposed to the image that we have of the Savior with long auburn hair and, and all of that. And if that's okay, <laughs> he was a Jewish man. Um, and and so, sometimes on a hot day, he sweat and it was, it, he might not have smelled great. And it's just, you know, it's not as romantic. Yeah? Don't they sometimes drawing with the long hair because he was a Nazarite? Yeah, but they're, they're trying to distinguish between Nazarite and then from Nazareth. So in all likelihood, probably Nazareth was the Nazarite part because the Nazarites would be out in the, taking a vow out with the Essenes. Like John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist. So John the Baptist probably had a really short hair. Okay? The Essenes were always going to the mikviotes, to the ritual baths, and trying to keep themselves ritually clean. So if any, uh, John the Baptist probably looked almost exactly like that. Okay? And, and the Savior may have as well. Uh, the women uh, were getting married in their early teens. Um, and men usually about 19 or 20. In fact, there's a, uh, uh, I saw a quote by a rabbi who said, if a man has lived to the age of 22 and he hasn't gotten married, he's really breaking Mosaic law. You know, get married and, and have kids and get going here. Okay? All right. Now, what, uh, what ramifications that has for the Savior, I don't know. But I think it's kind of fascinating to, to think about. Okay? All right. One other piece that I thought was interesting, and, uh, and we get, we get the, in the burial tombs, uh, you get these ossuaries here where uh, the bones would sit uh, in a place like this thing right here. The body would sit there until the body had decayed, 
and it was just left of bones. Then they would take the bones and they'd put them in these ossuaries and they'd put them in here. And in poorer areas, they wouldn't even have the ossuaries. They'd just take and put them with the bones of their fathers. And there'd be a stack of bones at the back of the cave. Uh, and so when, so when uh, Ezekiel is seen, the bones rise up and become an army and stuff like that. That really is part of that idea of the bones and all that. So, but, but finding these, these stacks of bones and then these ossuaries gives us an idea of have, being able to do some forensics on the bones that they're finding with these people. Uh, and what they found is that, that they ate very little meat. Um, again, a quick jump over, back over to Corinth. Uh, in Corinth... They're not eating that much meat, but most of the meat is going to like pagan sacrifices in Corinth. And so they'd, be sacrif- they'd sacrifice an animal in the temple, sacrifice it. Then they would take the meat out. They would walk it over to the marketplace in Corinth, and then they would sell it. And, and one of the things that was coming from Jerusalem and Paul is recommending is Paul is saying to the people in Corinth, even though you are a follower of Christ, if you're going to go into the marketplace and buy meat when it's really cheap during festival time because there's so much of it and you can get a better price, don't ask them where it came from. Because <laughs> if, yeah, they're going to say, this came out of the pagan stuff, then you might, somebody might misunderstand that. You know, that's a little bit like a, a Mormon walking around at a party with something that looks like wine and people are going to misunderstand. So don't ask them where the meat comes from. Just buy it. <laughs> But if they do tell you it's from a pagan sacrifice, don't buy it. Okay, that's why we have this discussion about meat in in First Corinthians. But uh, we'll, we'll see if we get to First Corinthians by the end of this semester. I think it'll probably be next semester. But anyway, all right. So, but they did eat very little meat because of that. You can see what happens to their diet. Um, they ate mostly grain, uh, so they had widespread iron deficiencies. Really, really poor diet. Uh, so you have signs of numerous broken bones. Be easy to get a bone, bo- uh, a bone broken. So I got all these people that are lame and, and all of those. Okay, um, a lot of joint and skeletal diseases. They can see where it was all swollen in there. Okay, so there is a sense with these guys that there was an awful lot of chronic pain and disease. Um, so when Jesus is coming into an area and he's healing. That is a big deal because they don't have any ways of treating any of this stuff, just living in constant pain. So if Jesus is going to come and take care of all of this, now he really becomes the healer. And physically, that would would take care of a lot of things. But you can see why people also died early. Okay? All right, so a lot of osteoporosis and stuff. And this is on people that are in their 20s. Yes. Yeah, they're mid-twenties. They're already in this place. Uh, exactly right. Um, okay. All right. So you kind of got it set in your head who we're talking about here? Okay, now let's put, let's put this in context. Now, so I want to hop to Luke 10. Um, and Luke 10, um, again, we don't know who the author of Luke is. I kind of like some of the scholars that have suggested that Luke might have been written by a committee, uh, including maybe some women involved here because of their understanding of women's issues that come out in that. Okay, so we're going to talk about Luke 10. Now, let's put the, let's put the background on this. 
In Luke 10, the 70 are returning from their missions and they're reporting their successes. Um, and and I want to point out something. It's actually, I think, in Luke 9. Has somebody got the Wayment book? I do. Got yours? I thought I saw one. Okay. That'll work better. Um, Luke 9. Yeah. Verse 21 in, in, Luke, in Luke 10. So Luke, Luke 10. Luke 10. Um, so they're coming, the, the, the 70 in verse 17 are saying, hey, even the demons are subject to your name. Uh, I saw Satan fall in his heaven, and, and this is working. And, and we're having these great experiences and all of that. And then, uh, verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. And you have revealed them to babies. So these things are happening to kind of the weak and the, and the uneducated, and they're having these great experiences. Uh, and in fact, the um, uh, some of the, the writers that are that are uh, like Josephus that are talking about the Christians said they seem to be coming from the poor and the more uneducated. Kind of thing. It was one of the slams of the Greeks against the Christians. They don't seem to be the elite joining the church. They never have been, <laughs> you know. Okay, so uh, they're reporting all of this and they're saying all these great things are happening. Now, in the middle of all of this, remember that in a, in a crowd, a, there's always this crowd following Jesus around wherever he goes. Big crowd. He's got his disciples. He's got proselytes that are learning about it. He's got people that are wanting to be healed. Those are there. And then we know from last semester that Herod has planted spies to follow Jesus around to find out and report back to him because he's a threat. Big crowds following this guy. He can organize people. He can feed them on the spot. Uh, and, we, and I killed his cousin. <laughs> so Herod is a little nervous about Jesus and what he's doing. So there's spies. The Pharisees have also planted spies in the camp because they're looking for an opportunity to trip him up and to, and to uh, take him out. And, and, and we don't know if this young lawyer that now steps up, literally, uh, is one of these Pharisaical spies or if he's just there listening and he's asking for himself. We, we don't know because we can't hear the tone of voice. Reading is a little bit like when you get a text and you don't know exactly what the tone of voice was behind it. Uh, but he does some things that kind of maybe gives us some ideas about maybe where he's going with this. Okay, so a certain lawyer stood tempting him. Now, how, the, how this works generally is that the, the style of the times is that everybody would sit and have a discussion with the leader, and he may be sitting just a little bit higher, but they're having a discussion. If you're a student and you, have, and you want to ask a particular question, what do you do? Stand up. You're going to stand up to be taught. I, I'm going to now ask a question 
and so now the spotlight is on me. So he's going to stand up to be recognized. Uh, now, it's interesting that the writers of Luke, uh, and, it, and, it's, and it comes out in the Greek as well, says that he was tempting Jesus. He was, gonna, he was interrogating him. Okay, and that was, that's probably the case. So a certain lawyer stood tempting him, saying, Teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, now, let, let, let's stop for let, let me just let, let me just stop. Ask a question. What do you do, what must you do to inherit something? Die. Somebody dies. Somebody's got to die. Okay, first, what else? What would you need to do as you sit here today to inherit Bill Gates' fortune? <laughs> You're going to kind of have to be a son or a daughter, right? You kind of have to be family. So what can you do to inherit something? Not much. <laughs> if it's, what can I do to earn heaven or what can I do to make it to the celestial kingdom? Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, well, adoption for the celestial kingdom, right? Because you're still going to inherit through an endowment of power, a gift. And an inheritance is a gift given to somebody that hasn't earned it. They have, by their nature, been born into this or something like that. So the, word, so the question is a little wonky before we ever even start. Yeah? So isn't he asking from the perspective that we're all sons and daughters of Abraham and we're all Let's see where he's at. You're on the right track. So you want to kind of see where he's going with this. You're a Jew. You're a teacher. I'm obviously an attorney and a, and a Pharisee. What do I need to do to inherit? Now, according to the law of Moses, though, what would you need to do, what would you need to, do to inherit eternal life? Follow the law. So in other words, tell me exactly what I need to do. But the word he's using is inherit. It isn't like, tell me what I need to do to live with God. He's saying, what do I need to do to be saved? Now, in an interesting sort of way, if he's been following Jesus all over the place, what did Jesus tell the woman with the issue of blood? What did she need to do to inherit eternal life? She said, he said, your sins are forgiven. What about the woman that washed his feet with her hair? What did she, and, and he says, you know, you're saved. What did she need to do to inherit? Faith, yeah. See, according to the law of Moses, you've got to obey these things. Here are people that don't seem to be living the law of Moses. They step up, and like he says about the woman that washed his feet, he says, she has loved much. You mean you just, how does that work? So, so in a sense, you get him tempting with a dumb question, trying to say, what do I need to do to inherit? Tell me one more thing. Now, yeah, so... What do I need to do to inherit? And he's going to say, okay, I love how Jesus handles this. And it's, it's certainly in the rabbinic give and take questioning. Jesus' answer. What is written in the law? And then he says, how do you read it? 
What's your interpretation of what the law says? So what do I need to do in here? Well, you read the law. You tell me. What does it say? What's your interpretation of how you inherit internal life? So I love the fact that the Savior says, I hear you. Let me put it back on your shoulders. Back on your... Okay, now you tell me. What do you think it is? Okay. And he answered, and, and, and I, love this, I love this answer, if you, especially when you see what's kind of behind it. He answered, um, Lord, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your understanding. We'll come back to that in a second. That's <coughs> Maod. Um, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, and the next line on that would be, on these hang all the law and the prophets. He doesn't say that in Luke 10, but it's there. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Okay? Now, so here, here's, the weird th- here's the interesting thing about his, what, he's at, what he's saying. Okay? So what do I need to do? Well, I need to love the Lord thy God with all your heart. So where does that come from? Well, um, that is actually from Deuteronomy 6. That's the Shema. That is the sh- that's the Shema. Shema Israel, uh, Adonai Alanehu, Adonai Achad. Our hero God, our God is one God, and, and all of that. And, they, and this is the prayer that's repeated several times a day. This is from the Shema. And it's Deuteronomy 6. But the next line, and love your neighbor as yourself, is actually from Leviticus 19. It's not from Deuteronomy 6, it's Leviticus 19, 18, okay? This is, well, love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason why I put this last one here, on these hang all the law and the prophets, that is actually from Rabbi Hillel, who is uh, like 20 BC. He's one of the major rabbinic schools. There was the Hillel school and the Shammai school, and this is from Rabbi Hillel, okay? And, and why is all that important? Why would this attorney at this moment say, how do you read the law? He's going to go, a uh, little bit of Shema, a little bit of Leviticus 19, and a little bit of Rabbi Hillel. Where's he getting that from? He's, get, he's quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. That, if you'll go back to Matthew 6, you'll find that. It's Jesus who originally said, let me tell you, love the Lord thy God, love your neighbor as yourself, on these hang all the law and the prophets. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is taking a little bit from Deuteronomy, he's taking it from Leviticus, and then from, a, from Rabbi Hillel, and putting it all together, and that's what he's teaching the people. So, is it, so why would the attorney, when, when the Savior says to him, I don't know, how do you read the law? What do you think? And he's spitting back the Sermon on the Mount. Why would he be doing that? Yeah? Jesus contradicts him at that point, then he gets to go back and say, but this is what you said. Absolutely. I'm gonna, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. 
I'm going to put it right back at you. And I, I just think that it's, it's wonderful because it is interesting that even for this guy, the chances are pretty good he is a follower of Rabbi Hillel. That was the, that was the major school. Uh, by the way, uh, Rabbi Hillel had a grandson by the name of Gamamiel who was Paul's teacher. teacher. And he wasn't, he wasn't harsh enough on the Jews. Hillel was from Babylon. Hillel was from the, from the dysphoria. He, uh, he'd been brought in by Herod. Okay? So, Hillel, so, so this is, he's talking right back to him. And so, so now the idea is, you're gonna, I'm going to repeat back to you. So now I've got to get more specific. How do I trip you up? Where's, where's the trip point for this? Where does he go? Where he goes is, but desiring to justify himself, again, all through the Book of Mormon, you always get Mormon's commentary. Mormon will drop in these little phrases, and thus we see. <laughs> and thus we see. It's like, here comes the editor dropping into the middle of all of this, and thus we see that when these people do this, and these anti-Nephi-Lehi's, were, you know, were unshakable. It's the editor's comment. This is one of those moments. And the attorney seeking to justify himself, says the author of Luke, said to Jesus. Okay? Now, what he's going to get on this is... Um, in fact, I'm going to come back to the Leviticus thing in a minute here. So here's the question. Who's my neighbor? Okay? Who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. There's the trip point. So now let's talk about who the neighbor is. Now, in a sense, before we even start, for, for an attorney in the Galilee, who would be his neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Well, since they didn't have any um, people that weren't members of their faith meet with them, if they were Gentiles, so they would probably, their neighbors would only be people that they interacted with in their, their religious groups. Absolutely. I yeah. Think. Yeah, and in other words... Uh, now let's go back to Leviticus 19. Leviticus is going to say, uh, when it says you shall love your neighbor, here's the line before it. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against who? Your people. Who's his neighbor? His people. Jews. And specifically, his people might not include the Sadducees. <laughs> My people would be the Pharisees who get it, not the Sadducees. Or the crazy Essenes out there wouldn't include them, and don't even get us started on the pagans. No, I'm not supposed to. The Leviticus, the law says that I'm not supposed to take vengeance or grudge against my people. So, so when he says to Jesus, "So who's my neighbor?" Well, let's see where this goes. Okay, so I love the fact that. So there's the setting. You get it? And now he's going to say, "Okay, so let me tell you a story." Let me tell you a story. So here's, and he's going he's to put it in this, in this wilderness 
uh, again, there is uh, Jericho right there. Um, Jerusalem, this is 17 miles. The winds its way up here, and then Jerusalem is over here. Okay, and you can, from up, from up here, uh, when we stop up here, you can look down and see Jericho. You can see Jerusalem, and you can see this pathway between. This is where he's going to talk about, okay? A certain man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, and he fell among bandits who stripped him and beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. A couple of assumptions that we've got. There's probably a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's traveling down there. Uh, they're going to beat him up. Uh, that which, which really means that generally bandits would show up and just steal your stuff. If he gets beat up, he fought back. So he's fighting for his life. By chance, a certain priest went down that way. And when he saw him, he passed on the opposite side. Okay, now, we need to unpack this just a little. Uh, many, of, many of the priests of the temple, that second temple period, were appointed by Herod. They came from wealthy families, either Hasmonean uh, or uh, those that were related to Herod. They were wealthy, wealthy families. There's a lot of wealth here. In all likelihood, the man is riding from the 17 miles. He's not going to walk because he's dressed. He's a priest. He's, he's got priestly garments on. He is ritually clean. He's been bathing in the mikveots in the temple. He's clean. He's riding. And, and oftentimes what would happen, uh, think of those of you who work in the temple and you have your little temple shifts. Well, they had their temple shifts and they were two-week periods of time, a fortnight. And, they, and because Jerusalem was small and the Sadducees were sucking up all of the good real estate, a lot of the, the priests would live down in Jericho. Okay? So what would happen is they would serve in the temple for two weeks. And, but remain ritually clean because it takes about a week to get ritually cleansed. They would serve for two weeks, then they would get on their horse or their donkey, and they would ride down to Jericho, spend about two weeks down there recovering, and then head your way back up there and serve in, in the temple again. So he's on his way after his temple service. He's a wealthy man. He's riding down, um, and, and by chance he sees him, he sees this man lying there, and he passed on the other side. Now, if you're, if you're a Jew, and you're a priest, and you're ritually clean, and you're coming down there, and there's a man lying there, is this man lying there, is he a pagan, or is he a Jew? I guess if he's completely naked, you would know. But that's a different story. <laughs> Outside of that, get that image out of there. How would you know if he was a pagan or a Jew? You wouldn't. Why? Because they stripped his clothes. And you'd be able to tell by his dress and what he's wearing, what kind. You don't know if he's a rich man, poor man. You would if he was, if he was dressed. You'd, you'd know. 
But if he's lying there all stripped, you don't know. You don't know whether he's a pagan or a Jew. You don't know. That has different responsibilities, right? I'm supposed to bear a grudge. I'm supposed to take care of my people. I don't have to take care of the other people. Now, so if he, what if it turns out that it's a Jew and the man's torn up and bleeding and you're ritually clean? Then what happens? You can't touch the blood, right? But you've got an obligation. You've got to take care of him. If you actually get down there and you see close enough, oh, he is a Jew. Now I'm responsible and that's going to make me ritually unclean. Oh, okay. What happens if you, if you reach down to look at him and he's dead? Now what happens? You got to bury him. You got to mourn him. You got to do all the kind. You got, you got you're wearing rich clothes. You got to tear your clothes. You know, there's all the things that go with dead bodies and funerals and mourning. That's all a problem as well. All of that, and and not only that, while you're ritually being cleaned, well, let, let me take a step back. If you're a priest operating in the temple, how do you get lunch? How do you get dinner? Where's your where's your lunch and dinner come from while you're working in the temple? And and there's and there's no cafeteria. It comes from the sacrifices. Remember the wave offerings and stuff. And they're going to sacrifice an animal, and some of that. And the and in most cases, the people will then take the sacrifice home, like the pagans do, and that's their dinner. But they cut off a big chunk of it for the priests. That's how they eat. Now, what happens if I'm ritually unclean and it's going to take me a week? How's my how how am I going to eat, and how's my family going to eat? We're going to starve. It's just got problems all over the place here. So, so in his mind, as a priest, what's the best possibility for him? Pass by the other side. Okay? Cool. He's going to do that. Okay? Yeah. If he was heading home from the temple, why would it matter if he was unclean? Because what happens is, is it takes... Uh, a little over a week to actually get cleansed. and In other words, if he had touched blood and everything, remember all of the cleansing has to take place back for a priest. It's got to take back in the temple. So rather than turn around and go, go back down to Jericho, he'd have to go back up, start the cleansing process, wait a week during which he couldn't eat. Uh, so it's just easier to go rather than ask any questions, I will just cross over the other side La 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 la. I didn't see nothing. <laughs> so you're going to head off over here. Okay? So he passes on the other side. Likewise, a Levite was near the place. Now, in the temple hierarchy, you have, you have three groups of people working. You've got priests. That can be the high priest and go into the Holy of Holies. You've got the priests. These are the priestly families. These are the priestly courses. Uh, they, now, the Levites, anybody who's a Levite, is now the temple workers. And they're, they're assisting the priests. They're doing most of the butchering of the animals and the killing of the animals and everything. The Levites work in the temple under the direction of the priests. The third group that's in the temple is Jewish laymen that are just volunteers. They're just helping out. So you got three groups of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back to your question. I'm still not clear. Do they have to be 
the cleansing takes place at the temple, right? Right. The only place that he can become clean is back in the temple. So he can't eat the food if he's not clean. Rich, if he's not clean. So if he touches that, then he's not clean. He can't eat the food he's taking. Right. Now he's got a problem. He can't eat. He's got to go back to the temple to get cleansed. But because it takes a week or so to get cleansed, during that time he's going to he's got to find get some food somewhere. He's used to eating cafeteria food, <laughs> sort of. Okay, so it's a problem. And not only that, um, his family can't eat either because they're living on, he's taking some of the extra meat home to the family. So the family is going to not be able to eat either. And it, 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 that's why I say there's just so many elements to this. Okay? All right, so here comes the Levite. Now, I te my reading of this is when the Levite was near the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That could be the man lying in the road. That could also be the priest. It would almost make sense to me, and some scholars have suggested it, that the Levite was in view of watching the priest, and what thou doest, I will do likewise. If the priest can walk around this guy, I will do the same thing. I assist in the temple all the time, and I'm watching this priest steer around. Oh, that would solve that problem. Oh my gosh, there's a guy down there. Oh, the priest went that way. I can do the same thing. I just follow the priest's example. Okay? So for all the same reasons, the Levite's going to do the same thing. He's, gonna, he's got to also be ritually clean, and he's going to follow the priest's example. He's probably, though, walking. <laughs> the Levites weren't nearly as wealthy. Okay, now... Let me let me let me ask you for a second though. We have a we have a a way of telling stories, and it's and it's, it was true then. It's certainly true now. We establish a pattern, and then you can actually fill in the next piece. So, for instance, and I would say like three men walked into a bar, but <laughs> three men walked into a barber shop. <laughs> And the, there's a Catholic priest and a, and a Baptist minister and who? Maybe Mormon bishop, right? Boom, boom, boom. We go to that, okay? Um, or or th three men walked into a barber shop and one was a, uh, an American and one was an Englishman and the other one is a French, okay? We just, our brain goes boop, boop. But we just fill in and we know what's coming next. Okay? So, here's a classic story. A man is, is uh, beat up alongside of the road. Along comes a priest. He walks on the other side. Along comes a Levite. He walks on the other side. And the next one would be a Jewish layman. Right? Or Jew. Or, some, I mean, your brain just goes, that would be the next step. That's what they're waiting for. That's what the lawyer would be expecting from Jesus. We know this story telling. What does Jesus do? Boom! Blows it up. <laughs> Absolutely blows it up. This, is, this would be a little bit like saying uh, three men walk into a barbershop, uh, a priest, a minister, and a plumber. <laughs> what? That doesn't make it. Uh, an American, an Englishman, and... Uh, a barber. <laughs> you know, it just does not fit. 
So I, I love the, the fact that the, Jesus is going to say, but a certain Samaritan went on the way and came to him and saw and was moved with compassion. Um, now, Samaria is, is over here closer to the coast. You've got Jerusalem here, Judean wilderness is down here, and then Jericho. So Samaritan is way out of place in this. What's he doing out there? We don't know. Uh, but Jews don't go through Samaria because they might get beat up by bandits. And Samaritans would be putting themselves in the same risk, but there he is. Okay? And it doesn't make any sense that this third guy is actually a Samaritan. And he's moved with compassion. And he came near and he binds up his wounds and pours in oil and wine. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, there's a, there's a, a hint of, for especially for the early Christian church of the Eucharist, uh, especially where they're seeing the Savior as the Samaritan. We'll come back to that. And he put him on his animal and led him to an inn and cared for him. Okay? Now, where would the inn be? It could be back in Jerusalem, but they're heading their way down to Jericho. In all likelihood, where's the inn? Jericho. Okay, so let, let me change. Ken Bailey uh, uses this analogy, and, and uh, I, I loved it. It's like, change this just a little bit and say, um, a man in the Old West is beaten up and he's lying alongside the road. And a, um, and a general and a, sees him and walks by. And a soldier walks by him, Old West, and then an Apache, Native American, who sees him and he puts him on his horse and he takes him into Dodge City with the arrows still in his back. <laughs> okay, now, under that setting, as this, as this Native American is, is walking with the man with arrows on his back, on his horse, walking into Dodge City, what kind of reception might he get in Dodge? <laughs> you see the problem? It's the same thing here. This is the same deal. This is a Samaritan with a beaten up Jew walking into Jericho. And, and for him, he can put him on at least, and he's going to lead to an end and cared for him. The next day, he gave two denarii to the innkeeper and said, care for him and whatever you might spend for him, I will repay to you when I return. This is kind of important because oftentimes if somebody's in an inn and they're not going to be able to pay the bill, even if you've been beaten up, you're going to get sent off to debtor's prison or you can be sold off as a slave until you've paid the debt. Okay, so he, he, he's incurring a debt by staying in an inn he can't afford. Okay? All right, so I will repay to you when I return. Okay? Now, here comes, the, here comes the, the clincher of the question, the, the story we know. But what was the original, what was the original question? Who is, who is my neighbor? Now, before the story starts, who would we say is the neighbor? The Jew. The, Jew. the man is beaten up. Look at what the Savior does with this. And this is going to become really important, and this is kind of the, the crux of this whole lesson here. He's going to say, 
which of these three, which of these three became a neighbor to him who fell among bandits? In a sense, what he's does, done is turned the, the idea of who, what a neighbor is on its head. And he's going to say, oh, wait a minute. Well, the one who showed kindness. And then Jesus says, depart and do likewise. Okay. Now, for the, for the, um, for the, the uh, attorney, who is the neighbor? Who is his neighbor? At the moment he stood up to ask a question, if you said, by the way, who's your neighbor, who would he say? My people. My people. Sure. My people, the Jews, uh, the other Pharisees, my other attorneys. Okay? Uh, and, but Jesus is <coughs> turning to say, wait a minute, you're the na- it's about you. So you're the neighbor. Mm-hmm. What he's done here, if I go back to the the oldest translation, Leviticus 19.33 says, and in addition to saying, don't bear a grudge against your people, if you read farther on in Leviticus, it says, if a stranger sojourn with ye, and ye shall not vex him, but the foreigner that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born unto you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord thy God. It's like putting the period on the end of that. Okay, so later on he's saying, You are to treat strangers how? As your neighbor. Because they are also your neighbor, is what he's doing. So here, here's the beautiful part about this that, that word neighbor. I went, I, I went looking for that one. Where oh, oh, here it is. It's uh, the word neighbor in the very earliest thing is raha, and it means to feed, shepherd, take care of, to be neighborly. Okay? So, so basically what he's saying here, in other words, you shall shepherd and feed any strangers and foreigners in your midst as well as you feed any of your own people. So now, let me ask you, the phrase that we know so well, now put it in this context. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is he really saying? They're all, your, they're all your neighbors. Absolutely. You are to love the strangers and foreigners in your midst the same way that you would love your own family. Okay? Jesus turns the word neighbor from a noun, it's who we are, to a verb, something we do. So in a sense, that neighbor is, means to shepherd and it means to minister. And we are to then, we are to neighbor those around us as we would neighbor our own family and relatives. Yeah? In um, Sukkot, the festival. Uh, uh, yeah? Isn't it, isn't it tradition that you seek and invite 
the stranger to come into your Under, underneath your little Sukkot, underneath your little shelter. Yeah, not only that, what you do at, at Sukkot is you also are going to put out like different foods and stuff like that. You're going to entice them to come feed under your, under your little uh, tent, if you will. In other words, for them, it's like manna as well. They didn't have to do anything to earn it. They just had to show up. And you're going to give them kindness. I think it's a, it's a beautiful parallel. Okay, so what does it mean then for us to neighbor? How, how do we how do we neighbor? We shepherd. We shepherd, meaning what? We minister. We care for them. We take care of them. We bind up their wounds. Treat them like we want to be treated. Yeah, and, and not only treat them like we would like to be treated, but in addition to that, we're going to treat them the way that we would treat our own family. We're going to provide all of those kind of things. For them, if if that makes sense, okay. Yeah. We're going to feed them spiritually. We're going to share the gospel. Yeah, we do, and we're going to take care of the things that they really need, right? Now, uh, I've said in a number of uh, places that um, in the first century, uh, first few centuries, actually, when they looked at this um, parable. Uh, they immediately, uh, whether you were in the dysphoria living in Alexandria or Antioch or Corinth or Ephesus, uh, and they're telling this story, they're finally getting the words and they're reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. Immediately, they, they looked at this, they jumped to um, the Samaritan was actually the Savior, which would make the, the person on the road who? Us. We are the ones that are beaten up. Who is it that was stripped of his raiment? Us. Where, where were we to get on the road? Well, we had been in Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem? And the, and the understanding that first few centuries church. Heaven. We had been in, we'd been in heaven. We came down here. We were beaten up by robbers, which would be what? <laughs> Adversity, sin, mortality, all of those kind of things. And beaten us up and it just left us helpless, bleeding alongside the road. There's a term we use as half dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we can't move at that point. I mean, we can't we can't get back to heaven. We're not getting we're not functioning here. You're exactly right. We're kind of, I'm mostly dead, basically. Yeah. A few years ago, when we were studying this, um, Sister Argyle, I was just googling trying to find stuff and found like that article by John Welsh and how there was this 12th century uh-huh. uh, stained glass window and showed the Good Samaritan and, and he compared it like you just did. Right. Yeah, and, and that's why I said, and I have and I have often taught this that, that this is really the plan of salvation. When when we go to Israel, we get up there and it's like let's lay out the plan of salvation. Here's the here's the uh, lone and dreary world. 
This is where we, we're lying. The, the Savior is going to come from heaven to come down, bind up our wounds. Take us to the inn, the church, where we're going to be taken care of. He's paid for us. He's going to come back and return. And he's paying out this to, to take care of us. Uh, and, and, a, and it beautifully fits. And that lesson works really well. Now, what I want to do today, though, is step one more step beyond that. The, the beautiful thing about scriptures is that they're multifaceted with multi-layers of lessons. In, and, and this is certainly one interpretation of the, of the Good Samaritan, that it's the plan of salvation and, it's, and uh, this is the Savior that is saving us and binding us with oil and, and all that kind of thing, right? All works. Now, but if you are the attorney and you are the people in Jesus' circle and you have just heard this story and so that night you would say, you heard, you heard uh, Jesus from Nazareth. Yeah, what did he talk about? He told a story about a good Samaritan. Really? What did he mean by that? What was he saying to us? What would your interpretation as a first century uh, Judean, what would your interpretation be? What, did Jesus, what was the point Jesus was trying to get across? That we're all one. Yes, including who? Everybody. Including who? Because if my neighbor, I'm supposed to just take care of my tribe, and I'm supposed to take care of my family. I've done that, and I keep the law of Moses. I'm good. I'll inherit eternal life. Well, it's a new law that, that Christ brought, you know, where um, it wasn't, you know, Peter hasn't had his dream. Of, um, Peter has not yet had his dream. Yeah, so, so you're saying this has always happened before, but this is where he's trying to get the church to think. To think what? So, so what, is he, what is he telling him to do? So your neighbors are those all around, not just your Jewish that you are to make that's right that you're that somehow you're supposed to get out of this narrow uh, Jewish mentality and you're supposed to reach out and love and neighbor and shepherd all those on the outside that would include Samaritans what about the what about the Romans what about the Greek pagans what about them those two okay that's a jump in mentality. That's why he's using the Samaritan idea. Yeah. But, but he really goes back and attacks the initial question because he is saying we are defined by what we do. Yeah. Not by our heritage. And the initial question was, what do I do to inherit? Yeah. It's not about inheriting. It is about being. And, and, and that's, why, that's why I think it's interesting when he says, it literally is kind of an interesting thing in the, in the, in the, uh, the Last Supper, when he says, a new commandment I give unto you. And you go, really? What's the new commandment? Love one another. Well, that's new. Well, it would be for those who believe that neighboring is just taking care of one another. I, I had a hand up here. Yeah, do it this way. And, and by the way, and I've reached out to everybody. You go, well... You know, most of the time you said you were just coming to the Jews. But guess what? When he's coming down the road and there is a Gentile woman who wants her daughter healed, guess what happens? He heals her. And every time that he's running across Gentiles, he heals them. He gets on, he gets on the boat, goes to the other side, 
and heals a man that is running all over the place and he's crazy and naked and he's running around the tomb and stuff like that. He heals him and then the swine jump in. The, that's a Gentile. And he went out of his way to reach out. And so he's trying to break this, this prejudice that they have racially. Yeah. He's also teaching without challenging that there's something that's more important than the law of Moses about them staying ritually clean. Yeah. And, and what he was choosing to do, and, and boy, that has all kinds of ramifications, doesn't it? That, that says, what he was choosing, he was choosing his ritual. The good, better, best. It is. I, I'm choosing those. And he wasn't saying there's nothing. He wasn't saying quit living the law of Moses. And he wasn't saying being, become ritually unclean. But what he was saying is there are a moment when, when there's, a, there's a good, better, best. I like that to say. My, my role now is to step outside of that for a moment and love and have compassion and love and care for. And that may mean crossing over to reaching out and touching and helping people that normally I wouldn't touch, normally I wouldn't be around, and normally I wouldn't reach out to, but it's my job to reach out to them. I'm supposed to do it, and, and I will be your example, and you need to do it too. Yeah. So this kind of brings to the forefront the, the lawyerly debate. And if you think about what happened in this exchange, the lawyer attacks the lawgiver with a question. Yes. And in the Jewish tradition, the first person to give an answer loses. Because when you give an answer, you stake out ground, and you can always be attacked on your answer. So they don't give answers. They just ask questions. Yeah. The first one asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, well, what do you think? Yeah, it's, it, 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 there is a sense that, so here's this, this is one of those moments, by the way, that they look at Jesus and they say, this is a guy that was supposedly a stonemason and a carpenter. He, he's he's, uh, um, he's uh, Haram, he, he is a person of the land. He's not supposed to have this kind of knowledge. And, and people are looking at it and going, you know what? Maybe after that little experience at age 12 in the temple, that maybe somebody pulled him into a rabbinical school because his, his, uh, his ability to parry questions and answers is, is really good. <laughs> it's great. And not only that, to be able to pull from a variety of places, because Jesus is going to quote from Rabbi Hillel. He'll quote from the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's just pulling from all over the place. He has this vast knowledge and understanding. Okay? So, uh, let me bring it back right down to the present, and then we'll, we'll be done. So, if we're going to talk about what's the takeaway from all of this. Um, I think that one of, the, one of the battles that I see going on in the church right now is that we are more, the country is more divided. Politically, we're more divided. Uh, there, are, there are battles on all sides. The, um, the new information that we walked through as a, as a class when we were looking at the Joseph Smith papers and the knowledge that's coming about things like Joseph Smith's polygamy and the and the uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre and stuff. We have history and, and stuff that is messy and it not subject to really clean answers. Um, when I w w let me give you another one. When I was in school at BYU, we were taught to take, here's somebody who is uh, LGBT gay and here's the kind of therapy that will help turn them over and make them straight. 
You do this and this and this and this and this, and that works. At least get them married off. Okay? Now, when I send gay students up to BYU, they're immediately enrolling in the BYU Student Gay Association that reports to the first presidency. You know, that, so we're getting, we're, we're getting this more diverse. So in our midst, again, I've talked about this before, and it's just one of those things I'm passionate about. We're going to have in our midst people that are really struggling with Joseph Smith. We're going to have people that are gay. We're going to have people that are doubting the historicity of the Book of Mormon. We have people that are having doubts about this and that. We're going to have, we're going to have this. And are we a big enough tent? Can we love and have compassion and care for people that are all these in struggling different ways and just say, well, I'm not sure I want to get anywhere near that. Or we're going to say, my job is not to have to have all the answers, but my job is simply to love. My job is to include. My job is to pull us close together so that you can be, still receive the blessings of the gospel even if we have different political things, even if we have different views of... of uh, you know, should, I don't know, should the church ordain women or not? I don't know. We're having a debate. And I, and I believe yes. And, you know, and I've got kids go, well, should there be gay marriage or something? Should the church recommend? I don't know. But in the middle of all of that, is it being, are we being unfaithful? Or is somebody being wicked if they have thoughts and they're working through a series of doubts? And are we going to ostracize them while they're doing that? <laughs> you know, it's just that... And I think that, in a sense, that, that's the message that I got out of this, is that our job is to neighbor. We are to be neighbors, and it's a verb. Neighboring is, is, is uh, loving and caring and shepherding and feeding and taking care of and binding up wounds. Unconditionally. Unconditionally. Yeah. And just like for them, Jesus was their prophet. We have a prophet today to help us. Yeah. And what happens if the prophet says, I'm going to ask you to do something uncomfortable? You're going to have to, you know, love those Samaritans. Well, we don't love the Samaritans. They are, they did bad stuff. They did stuff in our temple, you know, 50 years ago. I know, I know. Yeah. I think you so see that in the temple now with the patron Yeah. Well, and, and let me finish with this. Uh, Mark Moon t said a, had a little story. You guys went to the Swedish temple. Copenhagen, Copenhagen temple, okay, on, on vacation. <laughs> if we go back about 20 or 30 years ago, if you guys are going to roll in in your shorts and casual clothes, are you going to get past the temple recommend guy? No. Probably not. <laughs> and in that setting, they're like, just glad to have you here. Come on in. Okay, I think that that's fantastic, and I think that's kind of where we're going. So, all right, any final comments on this? Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love this topic, but I also feel um, to be loving, but also need to be firm in on the occasions. It's probably the most difficult part. And I, I, I wish church can, you know, have some material or lessons in the future to kind of, um, I mean, for me, I, I feel like I need to be taught how to be firm. 
how to be able to hold up, love everybody, bring them in, but not maybe sacrifice any of your values. I was thinking about one story, maybe not hit the topic. Remember that uh, maybe a few years ago there was a uh, Americans tried to bring the his other churches minister tried to bring the gospel to a remote island that. The people, the people who live in the island are the most, one of the most dangerous group on the earth, and he was killed shooting by arrow on the beach. Yeah. I was thinking about loving thy neighbor, but what about when your neighbor <laughs> tried to kill she, or take, a, take advantage of you? You have to take advantage of your neck. How, how can we draw the line? That, that's my. She's. <laughs> she, she, she's. He's. he's telling the story about the man that really loved his neighbor so he went to the remote island uh, to to try and teach them the gospel and they filled him full of arrows on the beach and killed him right on the spot and you go how do you so so how do we walk that line about saying how how do you love without getting shot Mm -hmm. and and without without losing your own values the kind of judgment involving in this yeah it is a thin line. Hang, hang on to that idea. I've got a couple of questions, and then we'll wrap up, because that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have a quick, easy answer. Yeah. Great question, though. Yes. This is a wonderful interpretation of all of this. And one of the things that disturbs me the most is the disunity among the Christian, you know, and Joseph Smith faced this. Sure. Trying to find the right church and everything. Yeah. Boy, that's a that's a good question because you just get this disunity among all of this and different beliefs. Um, I, I know. See, see that, that that's why I sat. Uh, I know. Run. It, it, so it's one of those one of those frustrations sometimes I have, and I'm having to work on this personally inside me, where I, I, I sit in and listen to a gospel doctrine class on First Corinthians twelve about the gifts of the Spirit. And I love the lesson on the gifts of the Spirit. And, and we need to have a lesson on the gifts of the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12 is a great place to talk about it. But that's not where Paul was going. That, the, 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about the diversity in your midst. And the head can't say to the heart, I don't need you. We need our Christian brothers and sisters. They may not necessarily believe everything we believe, but they bring knowledge and understanding and a different view of things. We need them as well. But how do we hold the line? Yeah. Uh, I just had one comment. There's a, um, a talk that uh, Elder Valley gave to the Saints in Salt Lake, and he said, you know, when people have questions, which, you know, you have these millennials, you have these generations, you have the younger generation, they are full of questions, and they can go to the internet, they can find, they know how to find the questions, but he said, please um, do not tell him or her to, to not worry about the question. Yeah. Don't Doubt the person's dedication to the Lord and His work, or, or to think that they're faithless, questioning their faith, but help them to find the answers. Like there's so yeah. many resources that we can. Yeah, and, and and don't just bear in mind like if I bury a uh, bear a large powerful testimony that will solve it. I know it's true, and we would do that. And, and I love I love what Elder Ballard is saying. Help them get through. Get, but you can't. We can't talk to these people if they're outside the building, if they're outside our house. He's saying. We got to bring them in and love them and have compassion and then gently help. Let's take a look at stuff. So uh, it's a big question. So anyway, we're out of time. Uh, this fun. This fun. Where else can we do this? Um, 
I bear in my testimony that there is great power in, in the words that the Savior taught, and there's, and there's great power also in understanding kind of where he was coming from, because then you get a sense to see kind of the deeper messages that are, I think are intended to move us, and how similar it is to today is just crazy. When we get into the New Testament and we talk about the racial tensions between Jews and Greeks and how they saw each other, you'll go, oh, wait a minute, I think we're talking about today. Because the right and left wing were battling with the same assumptions about each other. And it's amazing how close that was. So New Testament is just powerful to me. Anyway, uh, thank you for being here. See you next week. And I bear these things to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this introduction we have together to talk of thee and thy gospel and to gain greater understanding.